Well, many, many years ago, I was a student at uh, Bath University. Any cheers for Bath University? No, just me. <laughs> and um, when I was in my first year, a friend from home I was living in Cornwall at the time came to stay, and I remember next to nothing about his visit. And those of you who know me will know that's of no surprise at all. But one thing I do remember, um, that 250 miles away from home, my friend felt safe enough to tell me that he struggled with homosexual feelings. It was a burden he didn't want to carry, and he wanted prayer and advice. And just one generation, I find, one generation later, I find myself speaking on this subject, and the Western worldview has completely changed completely changed. Then the practice of homosexuality was condemned both inside and outside the church by and large. Today what is con condemned is homophobia, which has come to be interpreted by some as anyone who disagrees with anything gays or lesbians say. Then things appeared to be black and white. Today, everything is on a spectrum. So for example, the BBC has recently produced a series of education videos for schools to support the physical, social, and health education curriculum. And this is uh, taken from one video. It's called Identity, Understanding Sexual and Gender Identities. And a young boy asks, what are the different gender identities? And the teacher replies, we know that we've got male and female, but there are over 100, if not more, gender identities now. There's no way that view would have been aired when I was a student all those years ago. And as part of this series, uh, hashtag asking for a friend, um, some of you in this room this evening have asked a very different set of questions to the question that I was asked a generation ago. And here they are. What should I do as a Christian parent when a child comes out as gay? A member of my family made a commitment to Christ and he was baptized. Later he came out as gay and he's now in a gay relationship. Can I just not worry too much and be glad that he has a Christian faith? Christ still loves him as his family do. Surely it is a secondary issue that Christians have different views on. It would be helpful to talk about how a Christian can respond to current social acceptance of transgender issues. And can a sex change be justified in a Christian's eyes? So as Christians, what do we make of all of this? I mean, these are real questions, aren't they? They, they affect us personally. They affect people we love. They're not just academic issues. And we have to address these issues sensitively, because if they don't affect us personally, chances are they will affect someone very close to us, a family member or a friend. So we have to deal with them sensitively, but we also have to be honest about what we believe the Bible teaches. And so that's my aim this evening, as far as I possibly can. I want to be sensitive, but I also want to be honest to my understanding of what the Bible teaches. 
And I'm going to be talking, at the risk of stating the obvious, as a Christian in a Christian context in a church. And therefore, I'm going to be making some assumptions. There will be some things that I can say in this context that it wouldn't be appropriate to say in another context. And if you are not a Christian, then you will have a totally different starting point from my starting point. And we will have very different views about you know, what is the basis for some of the things that we believe. And I totally understand and respect that point of view. But as a Christian, certain things follow. So I wanted to start off this evening by just reiterating the basics. So a Christian is a follower of Christ's teaching and practice. So I say that because I'm not speaking here this evening as a sociologist or a psychologist or anyone with any expertise in social sciences. I'm speaking as a Christian to Christians by and large. And the definition of a Christian is someone who seeks to follow Christ's teaching and practice. And however imperfect that attempt to follow might be, the Christian doesn't choose which bits of Christ's teaching and practice they are to follow. So that's my first principle. Second principle is that a Christian upholds the teaching of the Bible. So Jesus upheld the validity of the Old Testament. He said in Matthew 5, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Christian, therefore, as a follower of Christ's teaching and practice, upholds the validity of the Old Testament, as well as the validity of the New Testament as a faithful record of what Jesus taught and of how his disciples interpreted that teaching. And then thirdly, a Christian is committed to truth and love. So what I find when I read the Gospels is that Jesus modelled an unflinching commitment to the truth and a sacrificial commitment to love. And so he is the example that we seek to follow. And it's clear that in this particular area of ethics, it's vital that we do those two things. We have to be clear about what the Bible says, but also we have to um, speak in love. And I understand that this is, for some of us, possibly a painful and personal issue. And... In some respects, the church has a bad track record of how it has responded to issues like um, homosexuality in the past. So I'm speaking from a Christian perspective. Those are my starting principles. What then is the Christian view of sexuality? And it begins at the beginning in Genesis 1:27. God created Mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So in the very beginning, God created human beings with two biological sexes. To the man, he gave XY chromosomes. To the woman, he gave XX chromosomes. He gave the man and the woman different reproductive systems. He made the man generally taller 
or in some cases much taller, and generally heavier. That's kind of stating the obvious, I know. But that's not to say that we should slip into lazy stereotypes. So Dame Helen Mirren, one of our English treasures, um, said this, I hate talking about my feelings, I never want to go to the doctor, and I'm a brilliant map reader. I have a lot of what people might call male qualities, but I certainly look like a woman. And the Christian absolutely affirms that perspective, <clears throat> recognises that there's an infinite variety in God's amazing design. So not every man likes to play football, and not every woman likes to bake cakes. By making both man and woman in his image, he gave both masculine and feminine traits. Because those masculine and feminine traits are attributes of his own nature. But Helen Mirren goes on to say there is no such thing as binary sexuality. And that's the point where the Christian, I believe, disagrees, and we'll say more about that later. The second important understanding from the book of Genesis is that God's perfect world has been fractured by sin, by humankind's willful decision to go its own way rather than God's way. The story is told in Genesis 3, but as a result, Every human being inherits a bias towards sin, an unhealthy package of desires inherent in human nature and exploited by human nurture. So writing to the Galatians, Paul says, for the flesh, that is what we are by our natural fallen nature, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So we are, by our fallen human nature, what we are is in direct opposition to what we were originally created to be and what we are being reshaped to be by God's Holy Spirit. So we need to hold on to these two facts whenever we think about the whole issue of sexuality. Originally created male and female, secondly perfect in God's image, but now fallen. Those two truths are a key to a right understanding and to a loving response to issues of sexuality. So let's take a look at homosexuality specifically. There are only a handful of passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality. And at that point, we should pause and think. At the very least, it shows that the Bible is not fixated on this issue in a way that sometimes Christians have been unhelpfully fixated. It talks about it, but it doesn't fixate on it, and nor should we nor do we as a church. So if you're uh, an infrequent attender here, um, you might think we do this kind of thing regularly. As far as I can tell, the last time we spoke specifically on homosexuality was in 2013. So we're not fixated on it as a church. We shouldn't be fixated on it as individuals. 
but neither is the Bible silent about it. So from the Old Testament, two examples, both from Leviticus, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, that is detestable. That's chapter 18, 22, and chapter 20, verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, it's not the only sexual sin to be described as detestable. Others are described in, the, in exactly the same way. But the strength of the statement is unavoidable, I think. From the New Testament, Romans 1, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. <clears throat> and then one more verse. From 1 Timothy chapter 1, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And there are a few other passages that we could reference. But two points should be clear from those verses alone. Firstly, that practicing homosexuality is a serious sin, but secondly, that it's not the only serious sin. We shouldn't make it out to be anything more or less than the Bible makes it out to be. But what about the person who is born with homosexual desires? How can God condemn them for being made that way? And here is where, if we're not careful, our thinking can get muddled. So the name Vicki Beeching may be unknown to you, but she's the author of a number of songs that we've sung here in the past, including uh, Yesterday, Today and Forever, we've sung lots of times, and some others that we've also sung. And last year, she published this book, Undivided, a biography of her struggles with same-sex feelings, how she grew up keeping them suppressed, and how eventually she came out and became a very public advocate for LGBT views. And she writes, I was only 12 or 13 when I first realized I was different. And knowing how sinful these feelings were caused, waves of shame, sorry, how, how sinful these feelings were, caused waves of shame to crash over me. This wasn't shame about anything I'd done, it was shame about who I was. And as the title of her book suggests, her story is one of coming to a place of wholeness or authenticity or being undivided, of loving herself, of making peace with herself. These are the recurring words and phrases that you read uh, as you read her book. She says later on, the person I'd always been, a gay person, was not something to be ashamed of. God accepted me and loved me and my orientation was part of his grand design. But that's where I think the thinking is muddled. 
because there's no more shame in being born with same-sex attraction than there is in being born with an unhealthy opposite-sex attraction. Such an orientation is nothing to do with God's grand design. It is part of the fallout of original sin. And when the Bible speaks out against homosexuality, it's condemning the practice, not the orientation. Wholeness, authenticity, being undivided is not about aligning our actions with our desires, but rather about aligning our desires and actions with the new nature that we receive when we are born again. Our identity is not in who we feel ourselves to be, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or anything else, but rather who we were created to be and who we are recreated to be by virtue of the new life that we receive in Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So if you are a Christian, that is your identity. That is your primary identity. And for a Christian to become whole and authentic is to align your thoughts, your feelings, your actions by the the power of the Holy Spirit with your new nature. That is what it means to be undivided as a Christian. It's what we do with our orientation that matters. And this, of course, has a bearing not just on the issue of homosexuality, but on the broader transgender issue. Now, before we say much more about that, we need to define our terms because there's a whole glossary of terms that we haven't got time to go into this evening. Cisgender, intergender, third gender, trigender, polygender, and many more. There are just three, I think, that are key to uh, tonight. The first is intersex. A physical condition affecting a very small percentage of people whose chromosomes, genitals, or gonads do not allow them to be distinctively identified as male or female at birth. So the vast majority of people with this very rare intersex condition do not identify as transgender, but rather as male or female. So the first thing we need to do is not to confuse this with the transgender issue. Our second term is gender dysphoria, which the NHS describes as a person experiencing discomfort or distress because there's a mismatch between their biological sex and gender identity. So a person with gender dysphoria basically feels that their body is lying to them. Their body says one thing, but they feel something very different. The body says they're male, but they feel female, or vice versa. Studies suggest that between 1 in 10,000 and 1 in 13,000 males, and between 1 in 20,000 and 1 in 34,000 females have this condition. So it's relatively rare as well. And it's not the same as the feeling that some some children grow up with and then lose in adolescence. 
there is a kind of temporary thing that goes on um, um, with young children that later, in most cases, um, disappears. So that's gender dysphoria. And then finally, transgender, an umbrella term for the state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not match a person's genetic sex. So someone born genetically male, but uneasy because they feel female, is experiencing gender dysphoria. And they may or may not choose to express themselves as female. Someone else, born genetically male, not feeling female, might choose to express themselves as female. That person would be transgender. So, what does the Bible have to say about any of this? And the answer is very little. <laughs> very little indeed. But once again, our starting point is Genesis. And I'll repeat what I said earlier. This is a book that Jesus quoted often. He upheld the teaching of the Old Testament and that God created male and female, two sexes. This was God's perfect design. But as a result of the fall, we are living with fallen inclinations, fallen desires, fallen feelings, of which gender dysphoria is one example. It's nobody's choice to be born with this condition but it is their choice as to whether they act on it or not. As John Stott puts it, the true orientation of Christians is not what we are by constitution, hormones, but what we are by choice, heart, mind, and will. It's a choice of how we act, not how we feel that is the Bible's focus. And therefore, although the Bible says nothing about gender dysphoria, it does say, for example, that a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man, may, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, it's only about clothing, but behind it is this principle that God created male and female, and we should recognize that distinction. That's the principle. So what about the person whose body is lying to them? The person experiencing gender dysphoria. Is sex reassignment surgery the solution? Well, Dr. Paul McHugh, who is formerly psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, this is the hospital that pioneered sex reassignment surgery, um, stopped offering it once evidence suggests that although most of those who received it were satisfied, quotes are his with the results, their psychosocial adjustments were no better than for those who hadn't. He writes, I concluded that to provide a surgical alteration to the body of these unfortunate people was to collaborate with a mental disorder rather than to treat it. So in his view, it is no more appropriate to perform sex reassignment surgery on someone with gender dysphoria than it is to perform liposuction, removing fat by surgery, on someone with anorexia. Last month, uh, Sky News 
carried this story of Charlie Evans, who was born female, but identified as male for nearly 10 years before detransitioning. Charlie launched a charity called the Detransition Advocacy Network, and says she has been contacted by hundreds of young transgender people seeking help to return to their original sex. So what is the answer then for someone who is born with gender dysphoria, who feels um, a same-sex attraction, or for someone who struggles with lust? Because in principle, the answer in all cases is the same to any disciple wrestling with any desire that comes from our fallen human nature. By grace, we choose to follow God and not to act out those desires that are contrary to his will. Now that's easily said and not easily done. But let's unpack something of what that means. To follow Christ means accepting God's truth about who you are and not seeking to define who you are. So the lyrics from this boy's own song, no matter what they tell you, no matter what they say, no matter what they teach you, what you believe is true, not really. A Christian doesn't make up their own truth. They take a stand on God's truth, that we are created, male or female, we are created in God's image, we're fallen and in need of redemption, and if we put our trust in Christ, reborn spiritually. That's the truth that the Christian puts their trust in. And also things like not making more of homosexual practice than the Bible does. And also the truth of accepting that we are all sinners in need of grace and mercy. To be a follower of Christ is to repent, to ask forgiveness for and turn away from anything that God defines as wrong. We can't repent of a sinful human nature we've inherited or our same-sex attraction or our gender dysphoria, but we can and should repent if we have indulged that nature or turned sexual preference into sexual practice. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, a Christian needs both forgiveness for sin and deliverance from temptation to sin. And that includes forgiveness for how we may have treated people in the past with same-sex attraction. And it means deliverance from judgmentalism, from thinking that others are, uh, you know, that we are better than others and passing judgment on them. To follow Christ means to live a life of self-denial. And this is where our culture has a serious problem because the culture of today, its message is that your body is yours to do whatever you want with. It's your body, you are the one with the rights. If you want to pamper it, then that's absolutely fine. But Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
One thing that comes over very clearly in Vicky Beeching's book is how costly it was to deny herself in her earlier years. She recognized that to come out as a lesbian would cost her her career as a worship leader. She understood that to live with her feelings and to not express them might be to rule out a life partner. She understood these things and they're not easy. They're not easy. Some people are called to singleness as Christ was. That's not easy. No one chooses a cross because it's fun. It is costly to be a Christian. And God may graciously, in answer to a person's prayer, take away someone's gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction or unhealthy feelings of lust. But more often than not, he won't. Instead, he will give them the grace to bear it, the grace to serve God and carry those things as well. To follow Christ is to accept the risk of being misunderstood, just as Christ was misunderstood. Vaughan Roberts writes, those who speak against the current consensus can expect a backlash and are likely to be accused of the latest thought crime, transphobia. This term is often extended to include not just those who fear or mistreat transgender people, but anyone who doesn't fully support the idea of gender fluidity. Homophobia used to mean those who were afraid to be around homosexuals. Now it can just mean someone who stands for traditional religious values. A Christian has to accept the risk, if they want to take a stand on God's truth, of being tarred with some of these terms. But Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To follow Christ is to model grace and compassion. Christian homes and Christian churches should be places of grace and compassion. Timothy Keller has said that churches should, be, should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. Personally, I don't like either waiting room, but um, what he's saying is that in the waiting room for a job interview, you, you try and look impressive. You try and look competent. You bury, bury your weaknesses. You keep it all hidden um, in the hope that you'll be accepted. Whereas in a doctor's waiting room, you assume that the other people in that waiting room have got a problem, like you've got a problem, because you're all in it together. We assume that everyone there is sick and needs help. And that is much closer to the reality of what is going on in church. Whether we're speaking to our child or speaking to someone who's come to us for prayer and advice, we can only do so from the perspective of a fellow sinner in need of grace and help. That is the only place we can start from. There is no place for being judgmental. One author has put it like this, before we challenge another person about their life, we must challenge the person we see in the mirror about their love.
to follow Christ is to follow him in a messy world. We're coming to that time of year when we celebrate the fact that Jesus didn't just throw down a few towels and sanitizers into the world from a distance and tell us to clean ourselves up, but stepped into our world and suffered with us and for us. Life is extremely messy and painful. Someone might be in a committed same-sex relationship. What should they do? Someone might be struggling with unwelcome feelings. How are they going to keep going if God doesn't answer that prayer and take those feelings away? Someone may take a different view on the Bible's authority or interpretation. Where will they find a welcome? Well, I hope they'll find a welcome here, not because we pretend that these things don't matter, but because we too are in need of grace, all of us, without exception. But dealing with these issues won't be easy. It won't be easy. The mess often doesn't go away. But as Christ's followers, we learn to live godly lives in the midst of the mess. That is the challenge of discipleship. God doesn't just lift us out of the mess. He tells us how to live in the mess. And he gives us the, gives us the grace and the courage and the direction to live in the mess. And he teaches us to love as he loved us. Um, Ellen was speaking from Galatians this morning and there was a verse in, in the passage she was speaking from Galatians 5, 6, where it says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So before I come on to um, some other places that we can go to for help, because I'm conscious that there's only so much you can say on these subjects in an evening like this, I just wanted to finish with some familiar words, normally um, preserved for weddings, um, but I think absolutely relevant to how we respond to these issues. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If that is our mantra, then whatever perspective we are coming from, then I think that will stand us in good stead. So I just wanted to point you to some resources which you may find helpful because there's a, as I say, there's only a limited amount that I can say in a service of this uh, length. So first of all, Sam Albury is a Christian author who experiences same-sex attraction. Uh, his book, Is God Anti-Gay? It's clear, it's biblical, it's sensitive. I can thoroughly recommend it. Undivided, as I've said already, is Vicky Beeching's story of coming out of a les 
coming out as a lesbian after years of following traditional Christian teaching. And while I don't agree with the conclusion that she comes to, there isn't, there's definitely a lesson in that book about how not to treat those that we hold a different view to. She was disgracefully treated by elements of the Christian church. It also has a lot to say about what it's like to grow up with feelings that we don't want and not being able to express them. So there's a lot that can be learnt from the book. One of the things um, that Vicky says on several occasions, she talks about some of the other things the church has got wrong in the past. So she talks about the solar system, slavery, women, interracial marriage, civil rights. And she makes the point several times that just as in the same way the church got those things wrong and because it thought in certain ways, that kind of led her to believe that they, the church was wrong on this issue of homosexuality as well. Ken Benjamin, president of the Baptist Union, someone you may have heard of, was on telly this morning, anyone see him? Yeah. Um, spoke very helpfully about this issue of homosexuality back in 2013 in his message, The New Taboo. There we are, 3rd of March 2013, still available from our downloads page. In it, amongst lots of other excellent things that he says, he explains why homosexuality is not in the same category as slavery and... Um, gender issues. He shows, based on a book that he's read, Ellen and I have read, on why the trajectory of those things is very different to the trajectory of homosexuality. So I do recommend that if you want to go into this subject more deeply. I didn't have time to go into that this evening, so I'm pointing you to another resource instead. On transgender issues, uh, Vaughan Roberts is another excellent Christian writer who also experiences same-sex attraction but he's another author who writes clearly, biblically, and sensitively. God and the transgender debate is also very good, and in addition, for those of you who find books not very accessible, um, there's a related website, thegoodbook.com forward slash transgender dash debate, where there are little videos, short videos, three, four, five minutes, touching on some of the issues that people frequently ask in this particular area, so I recommend that. And then finally, Transformed is a free download from the Evangelical Alliance, um, which discusses the whole transgender issue. Just search for it on Google and you will find it. Search and you will find. So in a moment, I'm gonna ask Ellen to pray for us. Um, you know, tonight may have stirred up all sorts of things for you. Um, anger, hurt, confusion, all sorts of things. Um, Ellen will pray for us, but if you are feeling stirred up in a kind of unhelpful way this evening, then do take the opportunity to pray with someone. Uh, talk to God about it at the very least, um, but pray with someone else if you're able. 
I just want to finish with these, with this closing benediction from the last verse in Corinthians, which I think is spot on for us all this evening. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We all need that grace. None of us deserve it. We all need that love and we all need to keep that fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.